Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to the first episode of The Hustle. This week, we're going to talk to Bruce Blackman, former lead singer of the 70s band Starbuck. They hit it big in 1976 with the number three hit, Moonlight Feels Right. But after three albums and four more years, Starbuck called it quits in 1980. Uh, Bruce mainly laid low until 2014 when he released his first solo album, Moonlight Feels Right 2014. In our conversation, Bruce explains what drove him to get back into producing music in this day and age. Uh, what kind of lifestyle Moonlight has provided him over the years, what he did for the last 34 years, and where he got his sense of style. If you've seen the videos for Moonlight Feels Right, you know what I'm talking about. Bruce called me from his home in Atlanta. Uh, well, thank you, Bruce Blackman, for talking with me today. And um, I, uh, I discovered Starbucks music about Three or four years ago, I think I stumbled on, if I remember correctly, I stumbled on the video, not the official video, but that wonderful, perfect video of you guys performing it in concert on YouTube. Um, was it on uh, Don Kirshner or one of those, uh, the Midnight uh, Midnight Special? Yeah, like that. Uh, there's a number of videos up. We did both Kirshner and the Midnight Special and American Bandstand and and uh, Dinah Shore and, and Merv yeah. Griffin and Peter Marshall and all the, you know, daytime talk shows and stuff. And there was a number of music shows on at that time. Uh, I've usually got an orange shirt on in all those videos because <laughs> we were caught, we did most of the TV shows with the CBS studios. And we recorded, oh, really? We, we, did, we did four TV shows in one day in that <laughs> building. <laughs> yeah. So everything kind of looks the same. It'd just be what, a, sure. what camera angles are different, you know. Sure, yeah. Some of them, some of them, some of them were live, and some of them we had to lip sync. The one, the lip syncers, like American Bandstand, nobody ever played live on Bandstand sure. because right. they did not have the uh, uh, the equipment, the technology right. to mic everything and do all that. I think Kirk yeah. was live. You can tell the ones that are live because it's not yeah. fidelity. Yeah, yeah, you can. They, they yeah, have a little, it, uh, go ahead. It's just the tastiest, most wonderful time capsule of the 70s I could ever imagine. I've put it on Facebook. I've shared it with friends. It's just wonderful. Not only is the song great, but the style, everything about it is great. Before we get too deep, i got to know, where did your white hat come from? Aha, that's, that's a funny story. When Moonlight, <laughs> when Moonlight hit, my manager told me that I didn't have enough hair. I'm not bald, but I just got a real high widow's peak, you know. Sure. And and uh, he said, you don't have enough hair to be a front man. So before we went to L.A., they sent me to this hairdresser, hair guy here in Atlanta, and he put plugs, actually sewed more hair plugs into my scalp uh-huh. when I had a hairline like Wolfman Jack. <laughs> so that night... My head started bothering me and everything, and, and we got up, and my wife said, oh, my God, this just looks infected. So we had to cut all that out. It had stitches. Well, when we cut it out, I looked like Frankenstein. Right. So we go to L.A., that and I'm looking cool. like Frankenstein, and we're getting ready to do American Bandstand with the first show that we take. Uh-huh. And, and, and uh, uh, Peggy, my wife, said, well, you got to wear a hat. Obviously, I had to do something, a hat, sure. wig, something. So we went to some little stores around there on uh, Sunset Strip. We bought a yacht-type sailing hat, a baseball uh-huh. hat, and my wife saw that little flat beret. Turns out that's called a Kango. It's an English driving hat. Uh-huh. So right before we went on the show, I put on each hat, and everybody looked at it and said, no, 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 the white one looks the best. So I put that white hat on. Well, remember I told you we, we did four shows uh-huh. in one building in one day. So I, I had the white hat on. Well, I wore the white hat for all the TV shows. Well, then, uh, you know, a month later, my head had healed, and I didn't wear the white hat anymore. We were in Kansas City playing a show with Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds. And when we started, we came out on the stage, we started uh-huh. to play, and the whole lot was 15,000 people, and they started stomping their feet and going, white hat, white hat. And I went, oh. So one of my roadies went out to the bus, got that white hat, happened to be in there. He brings it out on the stage, and we get a standing ovation when the roadie's bringing the white hat out. To no way. And I said, okay, this is all i got to do for a standing ovation. I'm in. <laughs> That's amazing.
amazing. And it's been kind of your trademark ever since, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, but I didn't actually create it. The audience did. No, it was out of necessity. That was, yeah, that was everybody watched American Bandstand. Everyone would go. Nobody would admit to it. People sure. would say people would always say things like, um, Oh, you know, I just happened to be walking through the living room and American Bandstand was on and I saw right. you. Right. Right. I was going fishing and I saw you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But everybody yep. saw it, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's the best story. So I want to, um, normally when I have these interviews with people, I kind of go back to the beginning. But in your case, it's so amazing to me that you put out. Now, here's one of the, here's one of the downsides of, um, of interviewing bands that are slightly more obscure is that there's not always a ton of information out there. So sometimes I might get, uh, I might have lapses in a timeline that you can fill in for me, but as I understand it, this is the Moonlight Feels Right 2014 is the first album you've released in 34 years. Is that That's right? Correct. That's correct. So That's correct. this, the main crux of this podcast is what in the world does a musician who has some semblance of success do with themselves for 34 years? <laughs> and then what pro- what provokes them to get back into it? And what's that transition like? Okay. Let's start there, and then we'll go back to the beginning. All right. After Star- Starbucks, we toured for four years up until 1980. I was still recording. I, I was really fortunate from a royalty standpoint because I was the writer and the producer uh-huh. and part of the act and owned half the publishing. So the way royalties are split, Moonlight Feels Right having a record that big was like me having six records that big. Sure. Because sure. of the royalty situation. So financially, we we were fine. But um, in 1980, we stopped touring. I still did one more single called The Full Cleveland. Uh, That's right. That, it's interesting. It was in R&R one week. And we were, the, I don't know if you know how R&R, that's radio and records. That's a, that's uh-huh. a sheet that... Uh, uh, most of your radio stations used at the time. And um, uh, the full Cleveland was Breaker one week, and the song right under it was Thriller by Michael Jackson. No way. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But the song just did well in certain areas and not in others, and that was uh-huh. the last single that we had Starbucks. That was actually just me and Bo. Uh, Bo was the marimba player. Sure, yep. Um, so after that, I had a huge sound system that we had built just for Starbucks. In fact, most of the pl- times when we played, uh, they would use, they would book my, our sound system. I started a separate company called Rock and Road Audio, which was sound and lights. Okay. So we, w- we would get bookings. For instance, we played well, like Marshall Tucker. Well, Marshall Tucker had rented my company, uh, uh, Rock and Road Audio, to, for their okay. sound and lights. Got it. So okay. then, then Starbucks would be the opening act for them. Got it. We did that so a lot. So you're, a lot in, of you're running Starbucks and you're running your side business at the same yeah. time. Right. Starbucks ends and then the side business becomes the main business. Exactly. And then at, at, uh, after uh, Starbucks quit touring, I still had Rock and Road Audio and they signed. We signed with uh, Hank Hank Williams Jr. exclusively oh. for him. Wow. I, we're doing some pretty big acts. Then sure. later on, later on, I sold that company. And I started a company called Sports Music Inc. And I was the first company to figure out uh, how to do aerobics music. Really? Yeah, aerobics music was just coming in. And and my daughter was taking dance at the time. Uh And I'd go to some of her dance classes, and I noticed they were always doing eights. All their moves that they would learn for a routine were in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three. The different sets of eights. Sure. And then I and then I found out that aerobics teachers, that's the way that they worked. Uh, uh-huh. It wasn't just an ad lib thing. They had different routines they did to eight counts. And a really good one might have twelve routines to an eight count. And I went, what if they had music that was already set in eight specific eight counts, meaning after eight bars something different happened? Yeah. So without them counting oh. to keep up with it, the music themselves let them know when it was the yeah, end the of the Yeah, the music eight. is cueing them to the next. Exactly. Okay. You had thir- 32 beats. And so I started, I licensed tons and tons, about a thousand songs, just hit songs. And did, really? I didn't try, yeah, I didn't try to do 
uh, make them sound like the original. I just made them sound good, like you went to uh-huh. a, a a wedding and there was a great band there. Right. And you didn't wa- and you didn't walk out saying, "Boy, that band's no good." None of the songs sounded like the original. Right. It was just okay. a great band. And so I I, uh, I worked that company, came quite successful with that for a, a number of years. Really? Uh, then I then I started a Halloween costume company called Zoogster Costumes. <laughs> really? So you're just you. I mean, it sounds like not only are you a gifted musician, but you have an entrepreneurial spirit about well, you I, as well. I, I I only had uh, I worked in a factory when I was 17 years old on an assembly line. Uh huh. And I worked there for two weeks, and I'm not over it yet. Really? <laughs> and I thought, how does anybody do this? So that was the last yeah. job that I had. So I, I had a, a number of different businesses. Uh, in 2013, we got a call to play a Chastain Park amphitheater in Atlanta. I've seen the clip on YouTube, yeah. Yeah, great. we played live, and... and um, so we we had never been we that was considered an honor to be able to play there and we never had sure. played there. So I got in touch with all the guys and they all wanted to do it. Bo Wagner lives the Marimba player lives in L.A. So they all came in. We rehearsed here in my studio for uh, we had about twelve fourteen rehearsals, stage rehearsals, paired quite well. And just doing that just opened up to how much I missed all of sure. that. So. Uh, 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 I've had my own studio called Starbucks Studios for 20 years. Uh-huh. Just you know, other people recording there. So I just shut that off and made it my own studio, and and uh, just started recording again. Picked up uh, right where I left off. Uh, wow. My next album coming out, I went back and said, "I'm gonna make this one a little little different." I went back. I've got tapes, uh, demo tapes, going back to 1972. And I'm going through there and cherry picking them, and I'm going to record some of those songs with today's technology because I was young then, and my view lyrically, my viewpoint was entirely different than it is now, and, and I I couldn't write those words today. Right, right. So I'm 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 doing that, but I'm using all the vintage instruments. I'm I'm using the really my 1972 clavinet, my 1971 Minimoog, all, all real wow. instruments. No, no computers, no computers. That's incredible. So, so for thirty whatever years, you're running businesses, kind of a regular guy. I mean, you're t- these are all these businesses. I don't know about the Halloween Halloween costume, but the rest are at least tapping into your musical abilities. I mean, yes, yeah, it's your talent in music that's launching you into feeling like you can start these businesses. But you're not out in the forefront writing new music or leading a band or right. anything. But when Although, that shafting, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, well, the Halloween costume business, that came about because a huge uh, costume manufacturer contacted me about doing a Halloween CD for them. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh-huh. I, I did a Halloween CD for them, which they used as a as a giveaway. Uh-huh. And then by being in touch with them, I started realizing, wait a minute, there's, there's nothing really difficult about doing this up, doing this as a website because I had the contacts with the biggest manufacturer in the world. And so wow. I, uh, on top of I started a Halloween business and my handle was anything they bought. I had same price as everybody else, but if they bought from me, they got a free Halloween CD. Yeah. And I literally launched a business. At, at, at one point, we were the largest online seller of Halloween costumes uh, in the world. Wow. Wow. So you've been, I mean, I don't, can you give me an, it sounds like you were a pretty successful businessman over all these years. Yeah. We, Starting we a had, company, it's being, it's doing well, and then you can sell it, make some money, start yeah. a new one, right? Yep. Right. I, I sold, I sold out of everything in, in uh, 2013. Wow. And so now it's, um, and you've maintained your, you were saying how you maintained your publishing of Moonlight Feels Right and the rest from Starbucks all that time. Right, right. What kind of, uh, and you can be as specific or as vague as you want. It's complete, I know these are personal questions, but what kind of um, what kind of revenue do you see? What kind of revenue does a number three hit in 1976 provide for the songwriter in this day and age? And, uh, well, just as a songwriter, I would say it's hard to say. So number three today is not the same as number three. 
uh, right. in 1976. By the way, uh, we were uh, number two on the AC charts Billboard, but at the time you also oh. had Cashbox, Record World, R&R. Billboard wasn't the most important one, and okay. we were number one in quite a few of those. But Moonlight wow. sold, uh, domestically sold three and a half million copies. And then, and, and then uh, outside the U.S., so 1.5 million. So it was uh, 5 million. And then we also, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, we started out with vinyl. Then they invented something called 8-track tapes. So it yep. came out on 8-track tape. Then they invented something called cassettes. It came yep. out on cassette. Then CD. So CDs came out. And now yep. downloads. So uh, the long story short, as of the day, Moonlight feels like the single song just passed 10 million in sales. Wow. So That's to, amazing. To put your question in perspective, today, I mean, I just saw something, I forget who it was, some artist had, had the number three or number four song. They had like over 200 million YouTube views. Right. And the song had sold 83,000 downloads. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's all, I mean, how do thing. you monetize it anymore, you know? You don't. There's people just, expect it. No. People expect it for free. It's, it's streaming yeah. radio has done that, so. Yeah. So uh, it's, yeah. It's, it's difficult. So I would say to answer the question specifically, a number three record today, the songwriter would get with today's sales maybe about twenty thousand bucks. Okay. But what does it do for you? I mean, like, can you, if you did none of these other businesses and just relied on money generated from Starbucks, from Moonlight Feels Right, could you live off that? Or is oh, that yeah. too meager? Oh, yeah. Oh, you could, really. So yeah, it's yeah. a good well, lifestyle, even to this day. Well, right. As I explained, if I had just been just the writer was my only input. Right, but true. There's a producer royalty, a publishing royalty, your airplay royalty from ASCAP, and and, and the artist royalty. So because of uh, I wore a number of hats in that situation, I get got paid uh, for a lot of different cuts. Normally, a band's only getting the artist royalty. Let's say they yeah. got a record deal and they got 10%. Okay, and it sells a million copies, uh, you know, at a, at a yep. buck a piece. Okay, well, they're they're going to get uh, 100,000 bucks, but they got to divide it by five guys. Yep, yep. And it's going to last you as long as who knows when you'll get paid again on that. Yeah, but, but Moonlight, yeah. the single song, uh, would have provided me, a, you know, a, a decent upper middle class living. Amazing. Ever since. That is amazing. So on top of that, you've been the successful businessman. Chastain Park comes along in 2013, and you it rekindles that fire inside of you to be creative again. And you put together – now, the songs that make up Moonlight Feels Right 2014, are they songs you've been collecting for a while? Do you write them on the spot? Where does, well, where does it come from? They're all of the twelve. There's sixteen songs on there. Four of them are vintage songs. Right. Uh, some never released. I've got a lot of uh, Starbuck material that was never released. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, twelve of them are new, and so I'll do that on my next album as well. I've I've discovered a couple other Starbuck songs. It's it's almost impossible to duplicate that analog sound that we had right. today. Right. Right. Uh, so I, I'm gonna over time. I'm gonna each time I do a project, I'll include a, a few that are that way. Although I still record the same way with the vintage instruments, but the technology of recording yeah. is so much better. I mean, you can yeah. record on an iPhone today that's yep. about the same quality that we had in a in a big studio back then. Right. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so you got an. I mean, what kind of a response have you gotten from 2014? Is it? Uh, do you know how many – now, you were kind enough to mail – I was one of the people who got a copy mailed to them. Mm -hmm. Do you have an idea of how many it sold or how many you've got out there in the world? Yeah, it sold uh, – last time I looked, it was around 8,000. It's not okay. giant numbers, but uh, it, it's today's correct. standards, that's it, not bad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably as much as a, as, as a band in terms of money would be about as much as a band who had a hit record but had a record deal today. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Because they they don't they just get such a small slice of the pie. Yeah, well, and you did it all independently, and it's all your just like anything else you were talking about. I imagine most of those profits are just going right back to you. Yeah, actually, I, actually, I had a record deal. Uh, I had oh, you a record did. Deal. 
I did, yes. Uh, but now the record deals really aren't record deals in the sense that we knew them. They're called digital aggregators. Oh, wow. So that's all they do. They just push a button and it goes out to a company called The Orchard and gets distributed to all the places where you can buy download music. iTunes being the only one that really matters. Yeah, yeah. Secondary to that would be Amazon, but then there's a million others. But that's really all they do, and they're just looking for a brand. Yeah, they're they're looking for a Katy Perry to to. It's it's evolved sort of like. Acting has you, you. Everybody's read the stat that less than one percent of the actors make ninety nine percent of the money. Yep. yep. And that's exactly the same thing with with music today. It's it's just just a handful, just a mere handful. And there are people that are famous who who are, who are making virtually no money at all. We've heard those stories too, and that continues. Yep. yep. Yeah, it's it's sad. When is your new album going to come out? Well, I have. Um, the new single is out. Is going to be released um, April 27th. A song called "Doing Nothing." Wow! Uh, and then I have a single that's coming out on a, a group called LingTea.me, which is also the, we- the the website for it. That's me and my daughter. That's being released in Europe uh, first in Vienna in in wow. May, and then I have a Christmas song that's coming out. So because of those three things I'll probably it'll be uh, next year before I release uh, another album okay okay so you I've, I've been following you on Facebook for a couple of years now and um, you mentioned in a post the other day about the number of views that Jim's Cafe which for anyone who doesn't know is the was the lead single I believe off Moonlight Feels Right 2014 correct Right. I'm coming fast. I'm coming home to see you, baby. Getting dizzy from those highway lines. I should have known I couldn't live without you. Counting down miles by the highway sands. I've been cruising in my 64 Chevy. Burning tires coming your way. Meet me down on the corner by the living. Down around Jim's Cafe. Yeah, that single um, has been viewed. I was just looking at it again. It's like 320-something thousand times. Yeah, I was amazed by that. That is amazing for (laughs) somebody who has not been out there for 34 years. Not to mention, I I mean, Starbucks' height of fame came way before MTV or, or anything that the modern era would, you know, gravitate towards. So. Those are a lot of views. By the way, is that your daughter singing back up in the video? Yeah, yes, it is. She's one I, of I thought so. The, the, yeah. the song Jim's Cafe, you were asking me what, what spurred me on to go back. That's all I'm doing now is just writing and recording, nothing else. Yeah, I'm free to do that now. Yeah. Uh, but where Jim's Cafe came from after we played the um, uh, Chastain concert, uh, I went to a high school reunion. And uh, uh, they wanted me to do something for their swag bag they were going to give uh-huh. out, something like a, a signed photograph. And I went, there's no way I'm going to do that. That's like the, the narcissistic fool of all time. Right. I said, I'll right. tell you what I'll do. I will write a song for our high school reunion. So I did. Jim's Cafe. Jim's Cafe is a famous restaurant in Greenville, Mississippi. Okay, Unbeknownst to me, there's about 400 Jim's Cafes sure, in sure. the world. In fact, I got a an email from a Jim's Cafe in Indonesia. What? Yeah, wow. There's one in Manhattan, too. A lot of wow. people named Jim on cafe. <laughs> yeah, but apparently. anyway, I wrote this song, and I made 70 copies of it. There was, there was going to be a, something like 65 people coming to, to the reunion. So I made 70 right. copies of it. And they were going to induct me into a, what they have a thing there in that little town called the Writer's Garden. So they were going to induct me into the Writer's Garden. So I thought it was going to be, you know, 12 ladies from the PTA, and they'd say, you're a swell sure. fellow, and thank you very much. <laughs> right. So I get there, and there was, I don't know, a couple hundred people. There was a local ABC affi- affiliate, NBC affiliate, two newspapers, two magazines. They went, like, whoa. So I whoa. had the 70 CDs. They were gone in like two minutes. Right. 
So I told everybody, said, well, where can I get one? Where can I get one? I said, well, just, I didn't even have any. That's all I had. And I said, well, yeah. y'all just send me a message on Facebook, and, and I'll send you one. So I get home. That was Saturday afternoon about 4 o'clock. I get home on Monday morning, and I had over 500 requests on Facebook for a copy of Jim's Cafe. Crazy. Which within Crazy. a few weeks turned into over 8,000 requests. Wow. For friends telling friends. Blah, sure. blah, blah. Yeah. So I thought, you know, looking in the theory of uh, looking for a marketing tower, I went, this is a marketing tower. Yeah. So that's when I went ahead and decided. And that's why the uh, the, the first single was Jim's Cafe. Okay. Uh, but so far as a single is concerned, the strongest one on the album is Doing Nothing, which is a laid-back toes-in-the-sand spring-summer type. Yeah. I was just coming out to that pretty too. much now. Yeah. You're pretty, I've noticed that you personally are posting a lot of these videos on YouTube and commenting on to some of the commenters. And you're very uh, interactive with your fan base. That's really smart, especially now in the social media age. That's how you stay relevant, right? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just shocked that it's happened, so I don't mind at all. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. I go, wow. I mean, who? But, uh, but, but uh, secondary to that, I've never put, I, I have yet to put a video up on YouTube. Oh, really? Oh, no, all those videos from no. Bruce Blackman. No, I, 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 uh, I've never put one up. Those are done. Oh. There's hundreds of them, and, and people have put them up. They're actually oh. all illegal, but I don't really mind, you know. Yeah, true. If, if you're lucky enough, somebody wants to do that, you know, let them do it. It's no big deal. Yeah. Wow. So when you, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing at your age, you're probably in your late 60s. Correct. Guessing. Okay, yep. so when you, you know, someone in their late 60s whose ties go back to the mid-70s puts out new music in a single, what are your expectations? I'm imagining 320-something thousand views on YouTube as exceeding those expectations, but are you getting radio play? I mean, is there... Oh, yeah. What, um, what's happening out there? Uh, Jim's Cafe, in fact, uh, 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 radio uh, just called me yesterday, a new single... Uh, doing nothing has just come out, and it's going to enter the charts this Friday. And then they said an odd thing has happened. Jim's Cafe went to number fifty-two. This is on the FMQB chart, which is okay. uh, it's a precursor now to the Billboard chart. The Billboard okay. chart I call the ConAgra chart. That's that's right. Clear Channel. That, that's what yep. that is. You know, it's very yep. controlled. It but uh, Jim's Cafe it dropped off and then this Friday doing nothing is going to enter the charts and for some reason Jim's Cafe is re-entering the charts. And went, man, wow, that's the first time in my life I've ever had a Whoa. record that fell off the charts and then came back into the charts. As far as my expectations, I really didn't have any. I just love to write and record and I just think of it that way. I went, well, you know, how yeah. do you put it out there for people to hear, you know? I got a record deal with a company out of Memphis, but I just let them go. I had an out on it because I realized they're not going to do anything except yeah. take most of the money. Right. Was, they're not doing anything, uh, and, and most of them don't. These online yeah. record companies, they, what they try to do is they get 10,000 acts, and they're mostly concerned about, you know, the Joe Blow Band in, in Boise, yeah. Idaho is playing in local bars, and they got a, every band has some kind of a following. And so yep. they're looking for all these bands that might sell 100 or 200 CDs or downloads in a year. But when you've got 10,000 of them times 100 or 200 for the record company itself, that's a huge number. For any yeah. given band, it's about $1.50. Right, right. Yeah, it's nothing. Have you seen um, – this is something that has come up in, in a lot lately. What kind of – you're on Spotify – um, I listen now. Spotify has become kind of my primary source of discovering new music. Um, you know, I read about something that sounds interesting, and then I go to Spotify and see what's on there. Have you seen what kind of? I hear you don't get paid hardly anything. No. Yeah. Has that been true for you as well? Well, yeah, it's true for everybody. I, I see royalty statements from Spotify. They're they're going to end up. You know, you got Jay Z has started his new streaming thing. The streaming yep. radio thing, I, the consumer really likes it, you know, because it gives you control over your own radio station. However, right. it, it, it is absolutely a doomed format. It has yeah. to be. They pay 
two one thousandths of a penny. That's what I've heard. Yeah, so yeah. in other words, if if you get a million downloads, I think that number comes out to two hundred dollars. That is so that's just it's robbery. good for the consumer, but these companies are making tons of money. They'll tell how much money they paid out in royalties. It's like twenty two million. But yeah. they leave off the part that it's two one hundredths or two one thousandths maybe of a of a penny. Right. So there's no way the no way the industry there's no way the industry survives on that. That's simply yeah. not possible. I, I know uh, at one time they had a big backlash because a number of consumer people were talking about record companies are ripping people off. They're charging $13 for a CD, and it only costs 55 cents to make a CD. That is true. That's yeah. true in terms of duplication. If it's just, it's not true in terms of the artwork. And if you take the whole package and put together, you're around a dollar eighty in yeah. price. But that leaves off, for instance, my, my uh, Moonlight Feels Right 2014 cost me $70,000 to record all that. So they leave that Starbucks yeah, studio? That's correct. That's musicians, wow. engineer, all that stuff. So okay. when, you, when you throw that in to it and then fig, figure it out, the first CD costs you $70,000. If you sell two CDs, then they cost $35,000. Right. Right, and right, so right. On. That makes sense. So you can yeah. you can figure your, you know, so it's all backwards. But the, the industry, the music industry, does not survive uh, streaming radio the way it is now. No. And I expect that Congress will change that law at some point because now you've got the problem: the music business does not have enough juice. The, you right. know, the, the lobbyists to to yeah. raise money for them and all that, but the movie industry does. Yeah, and, true. and once once Steven Spielberg and Opie and Clint Eastwood and all the people step step in there because their stuff is getting downloaded like that too, yeah, they'll end up changing sense. the laws. Yep. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, they're not as concerned about the little guy from Greenville. You know, they're not concerned about anybody. You know. No, that's true. That's true. It all is all the big boys. Yeah. When you when you uh, produce an album for seventy grand, does that all money come in right out of your pocket? Yeah, of course. It yeah, is. everybody yeah. gets paid. You know, I always say that everybody gets paid but me. Yeah, pretty much, right? <laughs> well, I mean, that's you the way it, it is. It, it just depends yeah. on how many sales. You, you know, I mean, it's it's always that. It's always yeah. a crapshoot. Nobody knows. Anybody in the industry knows what an excellent song is, but nobody knows what a magic song is. Nobody. True. Nobody and the only hits are magic. Now there's a lot of hits out there that once an artist is branded, I mean I'm sure Taylor Swift could sing the ABCs and it'd be, uh, you know, make the charts. In fact, right. the Beatles. I remember a story a long time ago that that uh, somebody told uh, uh, Paul McCartney that he really wasn't a good writer because the Beatles were so big they could record "Mary Had a Little Lamb" and it would be a hit. Uh huh. And he was so offended by that, the Beatles recorded Mary Had a Little Lamb, and it was a hit. It made the charts. It made top ten. Just to prove them right. Oh, man, I can see that. Wow. Well, so did anything, what's been the, uh, what, what about live gigs? I mean, it's probably too difficult now to get all of Starbucks back together other than for the occasional one-off special occasion. But are you out there touring at all, or are you mostly just kind of playing locally? What's that? No, we, we hadn't been we haven't been playing at all. Uh, it's just so interesting because we're probably having more jobs offered to us now than than back when. Wow, it's it's absolutely incredible. I'm getting like, I, in fact, I ha- had uh, an offer yesterday and two the day before. So really? we could actually for yeah. Starbucks to come play somewhere. Yes, yes. It had to do with the new stuff that I have out, which is, is uh, it's hitting in some areas. So the areas yeah. where it's hitting, it's mainly not for us to do concerts. It's for like festivals, fairs. Uh-huh. You know, you're yeah. coming up into late summer, going into the fall. You have a, you know all kinds of festivals and fairs sure. all over the U.S., which would be good because it, it doesn't just depend on you to be the draw. There's going to be a lot of people there. Yeah. Anyway, I don't yeah. think we could we could fill up you know you, you independent halls. You know, I, I don't think we could do it. We might could draw, you know, maybe a thousand people if we were lucky. Right, but yeah, but the it, festival circuit I would imagine would be tailor made for you guys, like a wine festival or you know. Yeah, we were offered we were offered, we were offered a wine festival. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we're uh, – Bo, the marimba player, wants to do it. Bo's a sure. doctor now. He's in L.A. Yeah. He's a successful doctor. Um, so, uh, we could do it, and we're just kind of going back and forth about it. Do we want to do it? Uh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, life on the road is a young man's game. Sure, sure. I can't eat, I can't eat McDonald's anymore. Yeah, right. I can't do right. that. <laughs> but would you make a month? I mean, like, let's say, you know, I'm completely making this up, but you get paid to play the Aspen Wine. I don't even know if there is an Aspen Wine Festival. We'll say the Aspen Wine Festival in September. Would they offer you enough money that it was worth your while to just get whoever from Starbucks you could to Aspen for a one-off show, or is it not no, you know, no. Those, feasible No, no. The enough? shows, the, 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 the number we're offered most of the time is in the ten to $15,000 range. Okay, okay. So when you take a seven-man crew and all of the equipment, to, to do our sound requires a whole lot of equipment. We have to have six people. Yeah. So was, what you'd have to do, and the problem that I'm having in looking at it is being able to string them a, together so they're doable. I mean, we yeah. could go out and do 30 days. But they can't be more than 250 miles apart. Yeah, yeah. And you have to do, you know, two or three a week minimum yep. to make it to make it feasible. You start having a eight-man road crew, a tractor trailer, sound and lights, seven men in the band. I mean, you're talking about three or four thousand dollars just to stay in a motel for a night. Yeah. Yep. So it it costs a lot of money to do that. But it would be feasible uh, if enough of them come in that we can string them string them together in a tighter right. area. Okay. And and okay. I'm, I'm not dismissing that possibility. We we might do it. I, I, most of the guys are, are in. Good. Good. Okay. And and there's got to be a cost, too, to someone like Bo having to leave. I mean, he's a doctor, for crying out loud. He's going to leave yeah. his job for a month or whatever to go, you know, fulfill this fantasy right. again, which right. means a ton to the fans. But you got a regular life now that you're leaving sure. behind. It's not sure. always the most convenient thing. Of course, Bo is mostly in because he's he's about to retire from his practice. Oh, is he? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he wouldn't be the the money wouldn't be the most important thing. Some of the other right. guys it would be. You know. So yeah. we could that do a thing sense. where me and Bo didn't take so much or take a even cut and give more to the other guys. A lot of things are possible, and and uh, just once we can sit down and look at all those logistics. We'll make that decision. Yeah, okay. Well, good. I certainly hope that it happens. Um, so, okay, well, then let's go back more to the Starbucks days. Um, you guys have what I think is a very unique sound, and I'm sure it derives from all those keyboards that you were talking about. What um, I've talked about this with some of the other people that I've interviewed for this. Is the sound that comes from your band, is it a sound that you as the primary songwriter are hearing in your head or is it an amalgamation of the various artists that are a part of your band and what they produce together does that make sense are you yeah, working toward a sound that you are that, uh, achieving a goal or is this what your group is coming up with no the sound that we have came from my relationship with Bo Wagner and our okay. whole idea was how can you do pop music and incorporate Vibes and marimba, and Bo is a, yep. a percussionist. Bo's the best marimba player who's ever lived. Absolutely. Fact, mu- uh, yep. uh, Musician Magazine uh, uh, crowned the solo he did in Moonlight as the greatest solo ever played in a pop song. Yep. It is right. used today in, in the percussion department of virtually every college in America. That, that was that was the thing we wanted to combine those sounds, and then what I had one of the original mini Moogs and a clavinet. So uh, what we do is just make demos. Uh, we had uh, two four-track four TAC machines, uh, and and then uh, uh, those are tape tape recorders, and and we would make okay. the tracks by pinging them. We'd we'd record six tracks, and then ping those down to two. 
leaving six back open and then fill out four of those and ping them down to two. So we could get like a 12-track recording. Yeah. Uh, they were very low uh, fidelity. A, a lot of those demos are out there on the market now. But yeah. uh, then then we would just take those songs. i take them to the publisher. The publisher decided what we recorded and what we didn't record. Uh, okay. And, and uh, then, you know, once the songs were selected, we would just take those demos in and band would learn them. Okay, so and, that's, and that's, you had you had been in a band prior to Starbucks, Eternity's Children, right? Correct, right. Were you the primary songwriter, kind of the primary creative yes. force in that band as well? Yes, we had. Okay, uh, Eternity's Children was put together at uh, originally at Delta State College in Cleveland, Mississippi, and then we went around and talked to the cherry picked the musicians from the best bands in the Mississippi Delta put together Eternity's Children, and I wrote a song called Mrs. Bluebird, which was yep. the only successful uh, song that that group ever had. I left the group right before the record came out. We were signed with a horrendous uh, management deal. And it was clear to me that no matter what, even if we sold 100 million records, you know, I wasn't ever going to make a penny. And, yeah. I, and I was tired of living like a dog. Yeah. So I, I left the group at that point. And then after I left, uh, Bo Wagner became a member of the group. Oh, okay. He liked the sound but was mainly interested in the songs. When he found right. out that I was the guy who had written the songs and had left, he looked me up and came to Atlanta and found me and talked me into putting a group together. And the group we put together was Starbucks. And we got a deal almost immediately with uh, the legendary producer Gary Paxton. He was the guy who uh, uh, produced the association, Along Comes Mary, okay. Cherry, yep. stuff. Um and then we got a deal with RCA, but then they ultimately decided to pass on the album, so it was never released. Huh. So Bo, Bo then left, goes back to L.A. I'm here. A couple of years later, I get a call from Bo, and he was part of putting together a backup band for Jose Feliciano, who was going on tour. So we go out to Fredericksburg, Texas, and put this group together at this famous Hondo Crouch Ranch in Fredericksburg. Huh. And uh, then we rehearsed for, I don't remember how long, a couple of weeks, getting ready. And then Jose canceled his tour. Now, that group that was put together consisted of me and Bo, who became Starbuck. The bass player, one of the singers, was Bud Cockrell, who ended up being uh, Pablo Cruz. What you going to do when you Yeah, I love Pablo Cruz. Yeah. And then Tommy Aldridge was the drummer. He ended up going with Black Oak, Arkansas, and then White Snake. <laughs> And then Ozzy Osbourne. Oh, my gosh. So that wow. group that was put together for Jose Feliciano, <laughs> every guy in the group made it, but all separately. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's incredible. And then Bo, when that broke up, Bo goes back to L.A. And I'm uh -huh. back in Atlanta. In the meantime, I signed a writing contract with the Lowry Group. And the Lowry Group had uh, uh, Joe South. Uh, walk a mile in my shoes and the games uh -huh. people play. He had the Billy Joe Royal, Cherry Hill Park. He had Tommy Rowe. Sure. Uh, had, a, had a, quite a stable of artists. Well, Tommy Rowe recorded a song that I had written called Drop a Little Rock. Yep. Interestingly enough, his version of Drop a Little Rock came out the same year that Moonlight Feels Right did. But anyway, Bo comes back to Atlanta. He's now touring with Liberace. <laughs> so he calls me up. And got us some front seat tickets to go see Liberace. And there was Bo on stage with Liberace doing his thing, you know. Oh, wow. I bet. So after, I bet the show, he, he, <laughs> after the show, he talked to him. He said, man, we got, we got to try one more time. We got to try one yeah. more time. We got to do this. So I agreed. Bo then put a group together and started playing gigs. After they had started playing some gigs, it was just a few months, you know, just playing copy songs in, in uh, 
in uh, clubs in Atlanta. Sure. Uh, then I joined the group, and uh, we rented a farmhouse out in Sandy Springs, Georgia, and every member of the group lived there except me. And wow. during the daytime, we would record with our TAC tape machines, and uh, at night, we would play the gigs. We'd play the jazz clubs where we put on a tuxedo, and all the guys with long hair put on short hair wigs. Uh-huh. And we, we, played, we didn't want to travel, so we played okay. in several groups. The, that group, the jazz group, was called Extravaganza. When we played at Starbuck, we played the, the rock clubs down in underground Atlanta and places like that. And then we had a stage show called Louie and the Losers where we did 50s and early 60s music. Okay. So because uh-huh. we, could, we could stay booked that way. Right. Um, but anyway, we recorded 10 songs in that farmhouse, and I took them out to Lowry. He liked two songs on on the 10-song ten, ten uh, demo, and that was a song called Rock and Roll Rocket and another one called Moonlight Feels Right. Yeah. And he said, well, y'all want a recording contract? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, okay, sign right here. He said, when wow. can you record? And I said, we're ready anytime. He said, how about tomorrow at 7 o'clock in the morning? I said, okay. So we had to play that night till 2 o'clock in the morning. Oh, boy. Pack up all our equipment, go out to the studio, unpack our equipment, set it up, and start recording with no sleep. Oh, man. And that whole album, that whole album, we only had three days to do it. That whole album is basically, it's just us playing live. Really? Yeah, because there was no time. So it's us playing live. Of course, we, we came back and did the vocals. But there's so the a, whole Moonlight Feels Right album was recorded in three days. That's I correct. No sleep. That's correct. Wow. And, and it's it's the closest thing to a live that you can get. Sure. Uh, Bo played that marimba solo in one take. We were all set up just like a band. What? Everything mic'd. Everything wow. mic'd. And then later on, we came back and did the you know did the vocals. So your overdubs sure. were uh, uh, the the vocal the lead vocal was all was done, and then we overdubbed. Uh, background and that's true yeah. the whole album that's amazing that album is excellent by the way i'm sure you know this when you wrote moonlight the song moonlight feels right did you know that you had a hit no did you know that it was going to take off no i wrote the song in 1974 i just had an accident and i walked through a plate glass window a sliding glass door in my apartment and i cut off the middle finger of my right hand completely oh severed it oh Plus, other, all kinds of damage done. Sure. Glass in my knees and in my feet. And, and they sewed my finger back on, and I had a huge, big, huge cast-like thing on my right hand. Uh-huh. I had a mini Moog, and so my wife, Peggy, she said, you know what, I want you to just stay home and write. Just stay home and write, and I'm going to get a job. So she got a job as a waitress in underground Atlanta. That's what supported us. And in wow. one night, I could only play with my left hand. Uh-huh. And I had my mini Moog sitting on the on the just sitting in the floor of the living room and with my left hand I played that da da the the, the analog synth lines that start the uh-huh. song da 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 yeah. da 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 I played that with my left hand and I started singing the song. And it, as I say it took me about I've told people this many times, it took me about fifteen minutes to write it and about fifteen years to learn how. <laughs> that is amazing. Now I okay, so I have to know. Did the chuckle that you give, uh, that chuckle to me embodies the entire spirit of Starbucks as I understand it. It's kind of this sexy wink that's it, like, it's not salacious, it's more kind of cool and fun. It gives all of this this kind of sexiness, this sweetness, a uh, it gives it a wink. Did you plan that chuckle? Or was that no. something that just came in under? Well, how did the chuckle come to be? Here's how it happened. We have four singers in in Starbucks. I was not the main singer. I only sang three or four songs live on stage. Okay. We, we had other singers that did most of the singing. They were all out there trying to sing a song, and they, you know, they had the great vocal control and all that stuff. And they would be go, "The wind blew some luck in my direction." I caught it like that, you know. And I kept going, no, 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 no. And a guy named Mike Clark came in the studio. And he said, Bruce, just go out there and do a scratch track and show them how to do it. So I go out in the vocal booth. I started singing. To my ears, it sounded so bad, I laughed at myself at the end. That's where the first chuckle is. 
When the record company, when the record company heard that, they said, "Oh man, that laugh is great." He said, "You got to get the heroes an example of an overdub." They said, "You got to go back and put that in every at the end of every verse." <laughs> so the, the the first one was real, was me chuckling at myself. Right. The right. second two were fake because they told me I had to put the chuckle. <laughs> and you didn't have Pro Tools, you know. If you're going to record yeah. something, you had to record it, you know. Right. So, so that's where that came from. Oh, that's genius. That is genius, and you've been chuckling ever since. Yes, right? sir. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Oh, that's, that's, that's another part of the wind blew some luck in my direction right there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, then, so what did it feel like then when, um, I mean, you had some minor hits after that. Was there ever any kind of disappointment that nothing else was quite catching on to the same level of Moonlight Feels Right? No, you know, there's not much you can do about it. The uh, yeah, the, the next we the next single I think was I got to know which went up into the fifties. Uh, I mean, even now the sales those records did today would put you in the top ten. Yeah, true. But then everybody yeah. be dancing came out, and that one right. should have gone further. It, it was number thirty-eight with a bullet. But you gon' jump around crazy half the night Everybody be dancing, dancing We needed one more at the time. I don't know what they call them now. At the time, you had P1, P2, and P3 stations. Then you had tertiary and secondary. P1 okay. was like Atlanta, L.A., and P2 would be Birmingham, Alabama, Jackson, Mississippi, and so on. But we needed one more P1 station to jump eight spots and keep our bullet. So we would go really? 38 to Right. And private stock, a station in San Diego called private stock, I mean uh, uh, called private stock, uh-huh. And and told them that uh, they had two choices. Uh, Private Stock had just released a song called "Don't Give Up on Us, Baby" by David Soul. Yep, I remember. And David Soul was a big star in a TV show. Yep. And they said, "We'll add one of your records. Which one do you want, David Soul or Starbucks?" And Private Stock said, "David Soul." Oh man! So because of that, it stayed at number thirty-eight, and then the next week. Because everybody's following everybody else then. You know, everybody's uh-huh. looking at what the other stations were doing. Sure. And that's what stopped that. But you, you just don't know, you know. You, yeah. It, the Moonlight, I mean, if a, Moonlight was the magic song. I mean, if a song uh-huh. is magic, you're going to know it. But Moonlight, by Bo and I, when it came out, it came out in September of 75. And Bo and I separated, and we went to somewhere around 400 radio stations, just little stations all around Circle kept making the circle bigger around Atlanta, when as far as Alabama, Mississippi, some Tennessee, some Florida, South Carolina. Right. Uh, got all, almost all the stations played the record, but they weren't big enough to matter. Yeah. But this yeah. guy named Mike St. John at WERC in Birmingham, Alabama, was well respected in the in the radio business, and he had heard it. And he said he said this is not a winter record. This is a spring summer record. I'm going to right. put it on next spring. Well, we thought that was just a nice way of saying, yeah, get out of here. Yeah, you know? right. We, didn't, we right. didn't get in every place we tried to get in. Mm-hmm. Well, he did. He put it on in the spring of 76. So we had completely forgotten about it. So uh, one day, the, Bill Lowry called me and said, Bruce, you got a hit. And I thought he was talking about Drop a Little Rock, which I told you uh-huh. about earlier on Tommy sure. Rowe had become a hit. He said, no, 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 it's Moonlight. What had happened... And then he said, you guys got to quit calling the radio station. I went, what radio station? He said, the radio station in Birmingham. I went, oh, okay, because he said, the Birmingham station is playing it. So we got got the group together, had a little meeting. I said, everybody, you got to quit calling the radio station in Birmingham and requesting Moonlight Feels Right. Everybody agreed to do that. At one point, but later on, we realized 
that no one had done it. I know really? I hadn't done it. I just assumed the other guys had. Each sure. guy in his own right assumed that the other guys had, but, but they hadn't done it. So it wasn't us doing it. Then well, Mike St. John caught on to that. He had like 25,000 requests for the record. So they did a test market in, in Birmingham and got some, because there was no product anywhere. For right. So they, they, the record company quick pressed a bunch of singles, uh, got them into Birmingham, and they just sold thousands and thousands and thousands just in a week. Wow. And then they realized they had something, so then they pushed the button and, you know, spread it out to the station. Right. They had a story to talk about. Mike St. John was well-respected. But still, okay. a lot of stations wouldn't play it. We were only being played in the southeast. Yeah. So they had this what thing you, called. What are you? Oh, sorry. What are you doing during those months when you're playing clubs? I mean, to take okay. Playing so clubs. You're still out making, there gigging. Playing local. I was making fifty-four bucks a week. But but uh, Moonlight ran into a snag. It got up into the seventies and then started dying. So they asked us to play for this, uh, a radio conference that was being held in, in Birmingham. Uh-huh. Where, where program directors from all over the United States came there. And the reason they wouldn't play it, because there was a new thing called computers in music, and they said, that song cannot be, uh, that, that's not real, that's computers playing it. Because uh-huh. nobody believed uh-huh. that marimba solo could have been played by a human. Right. So they asked us to play that conference in Birmingham. So we played it, and we already knew what the deal was, so we started off with Bo, or just a pin spot on Bo, doing impossible things on sure. a marimba. And then we played the show, brought the house down. The next week, Moonlight jumped like 30 points in Billboard because they all, they all knew that it was real and not uh, amazing. fake. Wow. So, But uh, ultimately, Starbucks' run was, what, like five years long? Uh well, from I mean, a touring three albums from a, from a touring level, yeah, it was yeah. Uh, from 1976 to 1980. Okay, what's what happens? Does the band break up? Is the is there just not enough interest to sustain it anymore? What happens when the band comes to an end? Well, you you get in an awkward position. We were yeah. not big enough to play the big places, and we were too big to play in the clubs. Yeah, and just as a matter of pride, I didn't want to be playing at some Holiday Inn, even though we could sure. make pretty decent money. And people coming up saying, "What are you doing here?" You yep. know, so we were we were we were in between the two, and there weren't medium many medium sized halls at that time. Yeah. So you know, it was just time we couldn't we couldn't uh, do it. But boy, yeah. when, when we had a run, I remember we were playing at, at a, a Buckheads, a part of Atlanta, real nice uh-huh. part of Atlanta. Yep. We were playing there. in a club there. Making $54 a week each. You take 54 and multiply it by seven. That's how much the whole band was being played. It was under 400 bucks for a whole yeah. week. Playing oh six sets God. a night. And oh. I got a call from a promoter in Birmingham. And he said, uh, would you guys be interested in playing on a show with the ELO, Electric Light Orchestra? He said, oh, but I tell you right now, he said, I don't have a lot of money. All I can pay you is $5,000. <laughs> and I thought... I went five thousand dollars. Is there a such number as that? I didn't. I didn't know numbers went that high. <laughs> yeah, your so eyes we went go to, out of your head. We went to uh, uh, Birmingham, played that show, and man, I was so scared I, I couldn't even see straight because that's the first time all, all these years of playing gigs. I, I sat on stage left. You know, uh-huh. people almost couldn't see see me, and now all of a sudden I'm the guy sitting out front. Yeah, you're. I'd never done that before, and, and there's. 25,000 people there saying, okay, some bitch, impress me, you know. Yeah, right. I was scared. But we started doing Moonlight, and I saw about 10,000 cigarette lighters go up in the air. Oh, man. And that that was really one of the very highlight things that ever happened because that was the first real concert. And then after that, everything, we we went out with Casey and the Sunshine Band in Boston and Hall & Oaks. You know, Seals and Croft. Yeah. Uh, so many stories from all that stuff. But now, it, it, I gotta, it was a good time. I bet it was. Just the glory days. Now, so I've got a couple more questions I want to ask you, but Hall & Oates is one of my absolute favorite bands. Do you have any stories, good or bad, about your time with Hall & Oates? No, we played a couple shows with them, uh, and they were really, really good. Uh, their biggest song when we were uh, out with them was Sarah Smile. Okay. 
Yeah. This was they were kind of about at that time they were about the same level we were. So yeah, we we, we played as equals, you know. Yep. Uh, we didn't have to go through the rock and roll pecking order. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. But uh, was no, there, they uh, were they were very nice. Uh, uh, good. Very, very nice. Uh, I, I, almost all of them were. I mean, I, I'd have bad stories to say about some of them. I got in a fight with two very, very well-known people. By the way, I won both of those fights. <laughs> hey, yes. <laughs> nice. But I don't really want to talk about that. Yeah, you don't have to tell me about that. No. Well, good. Uh, was there, when you look back on your career, what was the absolute highlight? Was it that playing in front of 25,000 people? What was the moment? Was it when you, was it the $5,000 check when you know you're not hand to mouth anymore? What's the, the highlight? I would highlight? say, I would give it two, maybe three, kind of equal the, the, that first one because that was the first time. Yeah. Uh, the, another highlight, but we were the first group to play for the uh, Disney New Year's Eve broadcast. Oh, really? December, the, December 31st, 1976. Okay. And that was the biggest crowd I had ever seen in my life. You wow. literally we played on they built a stage in front of the castle. Uh-huh. And you literally could not see to the end of the crowd. Oh my gosh. You you couldn't see. It must I don't know how many people that was. It I mean it looked like they were evacuating Florida, you know. Yeah. And then oh yeah. I'll tell you another highlight. While we were there, uh the movie Jaws was playing at the um uh at a mall theater. Okay. And we were set up to do an autograph signing at a record store there. So we go to the mall, and there's this line coming out of the mall. I mean, it must have been a 1,000 people in it. We're going, man, we ain't going to get in and see that movie. It's too many people. Uh, they were in line for the autograph signing. No way. Yeah, and the record company. Really? Had, yeah, the record company had sent 100 albums. <laughs> and we needed oh. over a 1,000. <laughs> Oh man, so these people are going. But I think the other other highlight was uh, doing the American Bandstand. Sure. Uh, First time we did that, and seeing how the the whole process is done, and how they make that teeny little place look so big, yeah. How they make the bleachers look so big. Dick Clark is the consummate gentleman. After the show, Peggy and I sat out in the parking lot out back. Um, uh, with Dick Clark and his wife, and and talked for about an hour. I was I was telling them Mississippi wow. stories. Sure, and they were just cracking up. We we had the best time. Good, good. Uh, well, then conversely, what is that moment like when um, it comes to an end? Do, do you remember a day when it was like, okay, well, I guess music is done, and I got to go figure something else out, or was the transition to your recording company? So seamless that it just you just sort of transitioned from one to the other. You know, it it didn't really affect me because you know I I've, I'm grounded. I grew up in Greenville, Mississippi, on the Mississippi River. My father was a policeman and then a sheriff, and and I was just always so grateful. Yeah. You know, I I never felt like a star at all. I was just so how could any human being be this lucky? You know, that's the yeah. way I felt about it. So I didn't. I didn't, I just, you know, went on with life. I didn't go, oh, I wish this, okay. that, or the other. You know, it it, it really didn't affect me. It, I mean, That's we amazing. gave it our best shot, and, and, you know, you can only do what you can do. Yeah. Well, and you had some success, and it sustained you all this time. It may not have, you know, lasted forever, but the effects of it have been good to you, so that's good. Yep. Yeah. Well, this is great. I uh, This is basically the everything I wanted to know. Um, I find your story really inspiring and uh, I'm so glad that you're out there doing it again and that it's satisfying to you and that the market is telling you to keep going at it. You know, a lot of times people put something out into the world and it just doesn't land, you know, no one cares, but people seem to care about what Bruce Blackman is doing. And that's a great feeling. It is. So far, as enough of them to make it viable, so I'll just keep going as long as I can keep going. They'll Good. tell me when I need to stop. Well, I caught a little there you have it. Great stories from Bruce Blackman. Uh, hey, since this is our inaugural uh, episode, I want to throw out a little challenge. Anyone who wants a free copy of Bruce's solo album, Moonlight Feels Right 2014, send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. 
The first person to send me an email with an idea of a show or a band that you would like us to try and track down for you, something that might be of interest to you, uh, the first person to email me with an idea, I will mail you a copy of Bruce's solo album. In the coming up weeks ahead, hope you like Power Pop. We're going to be talking to Mr. Zero of the Canadian Power Pop band The Kings, who you may remember had a hit in 1980 with uh, This Beat Goes On and Switching to Glide. And also the self-proclaimed king of power pop, Paul Collins, tells us uh, some pretty brutally honest stories about the ups and downs of his career. Uh, big thanks to Aaron Syrett, the producer of this podcast. Um, hope you join us in the future. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. I'll be doing nothing Just doing nothing I love doing